Thank you, Pastor Larry, uh, for reading God's Word and for uh, praying for us and with us this morning. Uh, as he said, if you, if you didn't do it yet, I'd encourage you to do now. I'd encourage you to get your Bible out and open it to the book of First, but in particular the final verse of what he read uh, that speaks very clearly to us uh, in very potent statements. There's four sentences in the span of ten words, uh, which we'll look at here in just a moment. Uh, but while you're finding that, I wanted to say a, a special welcome to you if you are a guest with us, uh, either online or if you're here with us in person. I knew some of you would be coming or tuning in. Uh, we normally would love to connect with you, give you handshakes and hugs, and give you a little gift from our church and, and have face-to-face much closer conversation with you, but in this weird time that we're in, we're going to get a little creative of that and much simpler than that. We have created, and this sounds very impersonal, I acknowledge it up front, we've created a little online form that we'd love for you to fill out to let us know who you are, on that, uh, that any questions or prayer requests you may have, ways that we could help you in getting connected uh, with the Lord himself or with our church family. And the way that you can access that, whether you're at home or you're with us right now, if you want to do that even later, uh, you you could access it at any time. It's at our church website, Christ's, don't forget that middle S, Christscovenant.org, and then forward slash connect. Uh, there's a really simple uh, card on there, a digital card that you could fill out, and uh, that will come to us, and we will follow up with you within the next day or two to start to get to know you better, start that process of helping you connect with the Lord or uh, connect even with our church. Uh, but that said, we are going to turn now to the Word of God and, and seek to understand it, to have Him apply it to us. I have missed getting to uh, teach and preach uh, for you and to you, but I've been grateful for the men who have taught over video uh, with me the last several weeks. Uh, but one of the things, admittedly, I was most excited to be uh, back to worship uh, with you uh, for was to get to teach, to open the Word of God for you and to share uh, what the Lord has said from His Word. But even more than that, I was excited to be here as a member with you not just as a preacher, teacher, but to sing with you. Uh, side note, being kind of apart from each other and not have other singers nearby me made me realize how ungreat of a singer I am because I don't have your voices to balance me out. So it made me thankful for these folks uh, who are leading us in singing. But I hope that you have found 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Pastor Larry read for us uh, verses 9 through uh, 17. We're mostly going to focus on verse 17 this morning because that verse alone has plenty to say to us, but the context of what he uh, read is very important for us. Um, if you did not know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. Uh, it is a holiday every year that we set aside as a nation to remember the men and women who have paid the ultimate price in military service for our country, uh, who have given their lives in service. And uh, it was making me think how grateful I am, as it does every year, for those men and women who have given their lives. But also, as my mind doesn't often think in terms of military and combat and things like that, but as I was reading for First Peter a lot this week, and thinking of this text in particular and some things that are said throughout this letter, I started to think about terms of like combat and warfare, things like that. These are very prevalent in this letter that Peter wrote. And one of the things that came to mind that I had to do some research to look up was a, a military technique or a, a combat technique that I thought I had heard about but wanted to know more about. And it's something that uh, I wanted to share with you that was made famous, was most notably used by a man named Napoleon a couple centuries ago, a French military leader, uh, a, a tactic that he would use. And that what he would call it was he would call it strategic 
envelopment. That sounds like a fancy term, strategic envelopment. If you think of an envelope, kids, like envelopes wrap around something, right? Like you put something in it, so you're kind of trying to surround people. What, what Napoleon would do and other military leaders have done at times in combat, if they're bringing their army against an opposing army, is they will do something like this. Uh, unbeknownst to the enemy, they will divide their forces. So this, they'll proactively do this. They'll divide their forces, and with one smaller group of their forces, they'll strategically come at one of the side, the flanks of the opposing army, and they'll, they'll seek to start, in a sense, attacking them there, being very direct, being very forceful with them, so that the enemy army has their attention drawn to that place, so that they start allocating resources and people and sending things that direction direction on that front of the battle, but what they do with that other larger contingent of soldiers is that they send them around unbeknownst to the enemy to the backside or near to the backside of the enemy army, and while that army, that opposition is faced towards that first assault, that larger contingent sweeps in from the back and fairly easily can take them over because all their attention has been given to that first threat, to that first danger that was very real. And it was a tactic that he, Napoleon, and other leaders have used very effectively where they will have one initial kind of threat or danger that they pose to the opposing army uh, to distract them so they can have their true uh, threat realized, that they can have their, their ultimate effect of sweeping in unbeknownst to the enemy, taking them by surprise. And it's a technique that works well. And I, I mention that because in this letter, and what we're going to see even in today's text, I think we can see that Satan uses a strategy just like that. That there's oftentimes in the lives of God's people as Christians that, that we have him, whether it's something he brought about under God's control or just something that happens that he utilizes, he brings sort of a first punch to us, a threat that's right in our face, a danger that's real, and that gets us oriented that way to take it on, to, to face it. But then he uses other temptations, other dangers, other attacks from ways that we may be distracted from. Temptations that are just as real, that are just as dangerous, but we have our alerts down towards those. And I think he was doing that with these early Christians. If you've read 1 Peter before, uh, you know that this letter was written to people, and you could pick it up even from what Pastor Larry read. It was written to people, Christians, who were scattered. Christians who, because of persecution from an emperor named Nero, who had started to threaten Christians and kill Christians and make a spectacle of them around Rome and even threaten them in Jerusalem, kind of their early hub, they had had to be scattered into new cities, into new places, almost into hiding. And Satan uh, loved to use that, I think, to, to intimidate them, to make them scared for their lives. But there were also these subtle temptations that they may have been unalert to that he was equally trying to use against them. Ways, threats that he was going to bring to try to crumble the church that wasn't just from Nero, but maybe even would be from their own hearts, their own temptations within their own soul. You can see it in this letter if you have time to read it later. You see in chapter 5, verse 8, Peter tells these early Christians, he says this, he says, to be alert, or excuse me, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, and he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he wanted them to know you have an enemy who's after you, who's seeking ways to, to take you down, to, to, to destroy you. 
But it's not as if he just thought the threats were out there. Peter knew enough of the human heart to know that there's also a threat from within, that there's temptations, there's desires even within the hearts of Christians that can become our undoing if we give in to them, if we're not attentive. If you look at the beginning, near the beginning of what Pastor Lay read, look at verse 11 before we jump down to 17. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, and there's that word exiles, these people who've been scattered, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So the threat wasn't just from out there to these early Christians. It was also from inside, from their own ranks, from their own hearts, these desires that they had within them that he knew Satan would want to tap into, that he would want to, to lure them, to bait them with. And Peter wanted them to be aware of it. And I think the Lord would want us to be aware today that, yes, there have been some initial threats, some initial things that have been right in our faces the last few months, the threat of virus, the threat of sickness, the threat of death, the threat of economic hardship, the threat of economic even ruin. There's been a lot of threats that have been put right up in our face as initial ones that we've given a lot of attention and energy to as a society and even as Christians. But there are a lot of other temptations, a lot of other threats that Satan could use, dangers that Satan could use to take us down as well. Things that we need to be alert to, things we need to be aware of as Christians so that we can address them. And I praise God, I thank God that the commander, if you want to think of him this way, of our army, Jesus Christ is fully aware of the enemy's tactics. Uh, he knows how Satan likes to lure us and tempt us and take us by surprise, and he wants none of that. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be attentive to the temptations that may come our way. And I think in verse 17, we're cued in a bit to the things that Jesus, our, our commander, our Savior, wants us to be attentive to, of temptations that we maybe have our guards down about but that we need to be alert to so that we're not taken down, that we're not destroyed. And we're going to walk through these uh, briefly, I would say, in verse 17. There's four commands that, that Peter gave to these early Christians and that now God gives to us by extension even almost 2,000 years later. He says in verse 17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think each of these represents a threat in a sense or a danger that, that could overtake us if we're not attentive to it. The very first one that he addresses uh, that Jesus would call our attention to and say, hey, look at that temptation, be alert to it, is that we need to honor everyone. There's a temptation in situations, especially in crises, there's a temptation to disrespect fellow human beings. Uh, to, to see fellow human beings and to speak ill of them or to treat them uh, with disrespect. And so Peter knows this and he calls these early Christians, he says, to honor everyone. That word very simply means everyone, all people. There's not exceptions that he says, honor them, show value to them, recognize the dignity that they have as human beings. And th these people, if you can put yourself in their shoes, these Christians who'd had to be scattered into new places, into to different territories because of threats to their lives, you could see how this may be a temptation for them to dishonor the people around them, to look down upon the people that they now have to live with, because they now are the strange outsiders in a society. They are probably taken advantage of, mistreated, maybe ignored mocked, looked down upon by the people that they are around now where they've had to be scattered to. And it would have been tempting to them to strike back with their words, to strike back with their actions and say, you don't know the half of this. You don't know who I am. You don't know how good of a person I am, how great of a God I serve. And to come attacking the people that were around them, to show them disrespect. 
to be condescending to the people they were around. And our temptation may be a little bit different. Uh, Our temptations to dishonor people right now in our society may be more along these lines, that that we are tempted more to think of our own self-interest than the common good. That we're more tempted to think about, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want inconveniences. And we can start to just turn so much towards our own desires that we actually start to subtly dishonor the people in society. But what I would say I see even more prevalent is that this happens with our words. This is happening with our speech right now. I feel tempted towards it at times. I know other Christians feel tempted to this. That we speak in very dishonoring ways to fellow human beings or about fellow human beings, especially the people that we disagree with. Because there is a lot of disagreement right now. Even in a crowd like this, I know there's disagreement about how we approach reopening, quote-unquote, society. How we think about things like social distancing and masks and economic decisions and reopening, things like that. But even the people who disagree with us, that we might think are as wrong as wrong can be, and maybe they are wrong, They are still image bearers of God. And and the Apostle James called this out. He said, with the same tongue, some of you, you praise God, and then you, you tear down fellow human beings, people who are made in the image of God. He says that ought not to be so. We need to be on guard against this temptation to feel justified, to express our anger, our frustrations towards people who disagree with us, and speak in ways that are condescending to them, to speak in ways that are disrespectful to them or of them. We must honor these people. We must honor everyone. There's no wiggle room in that command. Honor everyone. And we are representing Jesus as we do that, right? He is the ultimate example to us of someone who honored people who didn't deserve honor. If you want to look, you don't need to look any further than yourself, right? That Jesus, when he looked upon you, he didn't necessarily see some wonderful person who had everything right and and just had all their ducks in a row and was perfectly obedient and perfectly holy and waited till, till those were in place before he honored you. He showed you tremendous honor that was undeserved. And now as his representatives, we are called to do the same to others. There are many people who don't deserve honor, but we are called to honor them uh, because Christ has honored us and he commands us to do so. I would encourage you to honor everyone both in your speech, that's the way I've seen this most uh, clearly, but also in your actions and the ways that you treat them, the ways that you think about policies and decisions that you make. We need to, to speak, though, I would say foremost, respectfully to people and about people. Even the people we disagree with, even the people we think are loony, even the people that we think are going overboard, even the people we think are reckless when we're cautious, we need to speak honorably of these fellow human beings. We as Christians, brothers and sisters, should not, we must not be people who mock, who disparage, who slander people who disagree with us. That must not be traits that mock us. We need to be people who are willing to listen and engage ideas, even if we're not persuaded, even if we don't persuade them of our stance, we must still speak to people and about people with honor because we are commanded to do so in this text. And Satan would love to see us start to tear fellow human beings down. Uh, to speak disrespectfully of them. Uh, He would love to see that, but Christ knows that temptation can be in our hearts. And he says, honor everyone. And the second command that he gives us through the Apostle Peter here, this, this, uh, this danger he would want us to alert to can be seen in this command where he says to love the brotherhood 
Love the brotherhood. Uh, This danger, I think, is more related to the temptation we might not be aware of to distance ourselves from fellow Christians. Uh, That's not pun intended with social distancing and whatnot, but that we can face this temptation to distance ourselves from fellow Christians, to be separated from them. Um, But in response to that temptation, we might not even be alert to, we might not even be attentive to, we hear this command to love the brotherhood. Now, just to be clear, brotherhood doesn't just mean the male Christians. It's a family term to say the whole family of God. You are called not just to honor them. You are called to love them. That's a step up in language. You are called to love fellow Christians, to relate to fellow Christians even in ways that you aren't willing, that you aren't called to relate to just fellow human beings at large. And you can imagine how this would have been a temptation for these early Christians uh, to, to not love the brotherhood, to start to distance themselves from them, to start to become detached from them even as fellow Christians. They may have been, think about these people, they may have been embarrassed to be associated with the church. Right? The reason they were scattered was because of persecution for being Christians. So it had been tempting for them to, to be embarrassed to be associated with fellow Christians. As they were forced into new societies, needing to find new work and new sources of, of income or being able to provide for their family, they may have just started unintentionally detaching from the church because they had new priorities and challenges thrust upon them, being in a new town and a new situation. So they could have devalued and distanced themselves from fellow Christians for that reason. They could even, I think Satan would love to capitalize on these things, When there are crises, it is much more tempting for us as humans and as Christians in particular to start to let bitterness grow in our heart towards fellow Christians. Things that used to maybe would have just rolled off our back, not bothered us. When there's a crisis situation, we can start to become bitter towards people and judgmental towards people. And and Jesus would want us, Peter would want us, but Jesus over and above him would want us to be attentive to those temptations. Because we can be tempted to distance right now, today, from the church, from fellow Christians. We can be tempted to isolate from them, from each other. We have gone through a season, a unique season of a couple months now, where we literally have not been able to be together. So maybe we've gotten comfortable sitting on our couch or or at our kitchen counter to watch service or to to kind of uh, take worship services and gatherings and things kind of as we want, rather than to, to having to come and be in person and make the sacrifice of sitting sitting in the sun on a day like today and, and of actually getting up to be with people. We could be tempted to perpetuate that and to unintentionally start to devalue and distance ourselves from the local church, from the brotherhood. And we could be tempting, I would say this, to, to fail to love the brotherhood because of division in the life of the church. As we seek to reopen society, as we seek to uh, start doing things again together in society, and even as a church, like I referenced earlier, I know we have disagreement. Myself and the other pastors have talked to many of you who have different opinions, different approaches about ways you think we should do things together, and then ways you think that we should be doing things in society at large, and that is okay. But the temptation can be for us to start to hear those differences, to acknowledge them or to see them, and to to start to to become divided, to think, oh, those are the pro-mask people, these are the anti-mask people. Those are the pro-vaccine people, these are the anti-vaccine people. These are the pro-opening up the economy people, these are the anti-opening up the economy type of people. And Satan would love to have a field day with that. Rather than seeing the unity that we have in Jesus, to see the differences that we have about politics. Satan would love that. Jesus wants us to be very alert to that and say, 
Set all that aside. Love the brotherhood. That means Christians who disagree with you. That means people who have fundamentally different viewpoints on a society level. You have a bond of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel that you have. You have the same Savior standing up for both of you in heaven right now. Love each other. Like be willing to sacrifice for each other. Be willing to lay down your rights or your opinions for the sake of unity with the church. And I have been so thankful to see that in many of us these last several weeks and even today. I'm grateful to see that, that we are seeking to do that. But we must be on guard for that and to keep doing it. Keep loving the brotherhood. Not, not settle into some sort of division and isolation and distancing from each other. But to see unity. Because fellow Christians are not just fellow image bearers of society at large, but they are members of the same family with us. They are saved by the same God. We have the same Heavenly Father. We have the same Holy Spirit within us. Individually and collectively, we have the same Savior in Heaven. We must love the brotherhood even more than we do society at large. I would say one thing we need to do in this front to love the brotherhood is to assume the best of fellow Christians. Assume the best of them. If we're called to love them here, I, I, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul said this to Christians. He said, love believes all things. And I think part of what he was saying in that is, as we seek to love each other as fellow Christians, we must believe the best of them. To not assume that they are dumb, that they are foolish, that they are selfish, that they are reckless, that they are any of these things, but to assume that they are seeking to honor the Lord to assume that they are seeking to represent Christ as best as they know how. That I have thought about this often. People, for example, not to stereotype, but to, to make a point. People who are pro-masks aren't all cowards. And people who are anti-masks aren't all heartless. Okay? People who are quick to reopen the economy aren't all greedy, and people who are slow to reopen it aren't all naive about economics. Okay? Well, like, there are different reasons that motivate different things that we think would be best, and we must assume the best of each other as fellow Christians. Dialogue about those things, but do so with respect and with love in our hearts. And I would say this also, lastly, under this point, is that we need to defer to weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd encourage you to read Romans chapter 14 sometime today or in the days ahead. This has been a principle from the early church that sometimes there are differences of conscience. There are differences of things we think we should do or shouldn't do as Christians that aren't spelled out exactly in the Bible. And when we have those among us who feel more constrained by conscience to do certain things or not do certain things that we maybe feel we should have more latitude on, we are called, if we are that stronger brother, to defer to the weaker one. To say, I'm willing to lay down my rights. I'm willing to lay down my take on this to serve you, brother or sister. We need to be marked by that deference as Christians. We are called to love the brotherhood, and Christ would want us to be alert to that threat of Satan, to distance us from each other. The third and fourth commands here, he moves from fellow humans and, uh, and peers, so to speak, and talks about authorities, both a divine authority and a human authority and how we're to relate to them. And Jesus lovingly would point out temptations to us that we may fall into and not even be aware of it here. I find it interesting that the third command here is that he says, fear God. The temptation, I think, that, that he would want us to be alert to is that we can be tempted to displace God from the throne that he should have in our lives. We can be tempted to, to be uh, distracted from him and, and the role that he should have in our lives. And I would point out to you that he is writing to Christians. 
He's writing to people who already fear God, who already have a respect and a, a awe and a wonder. This isn't a terror type of fear, but an awe and a reverence before God. They already have that. He's telling them, keep having it. In the midst of this crisis, you're going to be tempted to, to subtly stop fearing God, to, to subtly displace Him from the role that He has rightfully in your life. And you might not even realize it, but you're going to be tempted to do it. And so Peter calls them to keep fearing God. You could imagine being these people, hearing this command, reading it from the Apostle Peter, uh, reasons they may have been stopping fearing God or letting their fear of God d diminish. They could have been, in their situation, frustrated with God, upset with Him that He allowed this persecution, that He allowed the death, the, 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 uh, the assault of Christians and of Christianity. They could have been frustrated with Him and, and started to distance themselves. And they're like, why would you allow this? Why would you have this be? And their, their reverence and their awe and their, their dedication to the Lord could slowly wane and diminish. They could have been tempted going into a new society to let the God from where they had used to live maybe be thought of in their mind as a, a geographical God who was God back there. But as I go into a new territory, I need to, to follow the gods of this place. I need to start to worship them and Jesus. They could have been tempted to, to start to fear other gods and being drawn to the, the, uh, the gods of those around them. We don't face those exact temptations, but we all face a temptation, even as Christians, to let our fear of God, our reverence before Him, slowly diminish in the midst of crisis. Because we become so uh, focused on the problems we're dealing with, so focused on this health crisis or economic crisis or relational crisis that we have that our relationship with God can sometimes slowly fade into the background. That He loses His role of importance in our life. The, the Lordship that He has over us and that we have acknowledged before can slowly start to diminish. Some of us may be struggling with resentment toward God of why has he allowed this. Some of you have, I know, have loved ones who have died from this virus. Uh, we may be tempted towards that. We may be uh, tempted to, to even, I would say this, start to fear other people in the sense of that we should be fearing God. Or we start to see other people as our savior, as our advocate, as our one who has all the right answers and can provide all the right solutions to us as a society. We can start, I won't fill in the blank of who those people may be for you, but I could probably name some of them. We can start to elevate fellow human beings as our God, as our savior, as the one who knows all and that we look to for guidance instead of God. And, and the Lord wants to alert us to that, that temptation, say, keep fearing God. Keep having reverence for Him. Keep showing the respect and honor that He is due above all others. Some of you, I, I don't want this opportunity to be wasted, though, before I go to our last point. There are some of you who I can't even tell, keep fearing God, because you've never started fearing God. You've not yet in your life started to fear God, have a reverence and awe before Him that you should have. And I would tell you today not to keep fearing Him, but start fearing Him. Start acknowledging Him for who He is and, and the role that He has in this world and that He should have in your life as your Lord and as your Savior. Because while we may be distracted with different temptations and threats, there is one threat that is going to come to you, I promise you, and that is the threat of death. And that is the threat of the judgment of God. Those are not mere hypotheticals. Those are going to come to each and every one of us. They are going to come sooner or later for us. And it should strike fear in our hearts in the sense of panic and terror if we imagine ourselves standing before a holy God as sinful people 
who are to be judged by him. We should be afraid of him in the sense we normally say that I'm afraid, that I'm fearful of something. But praise God, we don't have to think of him that way. We don't have to relate to him that way with panic and terror. And the reason is this, is because you read about in 1 Peter and in other places in the Bible, you read about a Savior, Jesus Christ, who became a human being, the one person who had every right to crush you, every right to judge you, every right to, to strike terror in you, as your judge, he laid down his life for your sins, for your guilt, the very thing that, that should bring you judgment for eternity. Christ took that upon himself on the cross. He didn't come to destroy, but he came to save you. And when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, and Peter was right there around as it happened, he saw it happen. He was, he was there witnessing these events. Christ let himself, the righteous one, take your sin and unrighteousness onto himself. And he was crushed for it. And because of his suffering in your place, his taking the punishment of your sin and then being raised back to life forever, he now invites any and all of you, any and all of us, he says, come to me and I will forgive you. Turn from your sins. I will not crush you. I will not destroy you. You don't need to be panic and terror stricken before me. I will receive you. I will forgive you. I will welcome you into the family of God. And so even though we should be cowering in fear to God, we can approach Him with a fearful reverence and awe, and that can be true of you today. I hope that this pandemic, this crisis, whatever you want to call it, for those of you who have not yet feared God, will be a time in your life that God uses to help you see Him for who He is. That you need rescue from something more than a virus, from something more than economic hardship. You need rescue from sin and hell, and that is provided for you through Christ. And so we are called, each and every one of us, to fear God, to keep fearing God. But the last threat, I think, is the one that's the most sensitive. I want to be careful how I talk about this, but I also want to be clear about this. The last one is where Peter moves to the realm of human authority. And Jesus, through the Apostle Peter, I think, is calling out an area we may be very blinded to and not even see as a temptation or as a vulnerability because he says, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. I can imagine uh, the, the people who received this letter, when they got to this section, just having their jaws drop. Like, the emperor? Like, Nero? The guy who's been killing us, the, the guy who has been persecuting us and, and mocking us and making a public spectacle of us and burning the bodies of Christians around Rome like candles, like that guy. Like, honor him. Like, surely this was an ancient equivalent of a typo, but it, it's not. Like, Peter is very clearly telling them, honor the emperor. Because he knew that in this crisis there and in every crisis that we, we find ourselves in, that there is a temptation in our heart to disregard authorities, to disregard people who are in authority over us. And Peter gives a very simple but challenging command when he says, honor the emperor. These people would have been tempted to just to hate Nero. Just, just disparage him and slander him every chance they got and to, to make people aware of how horrible and awful this man was. But Peter says to honor him. 
They've been tempted, I think, to probably defy the laws and regulations of Nero, even ones that may have not been just purely anti-Christian, but just to hate everything and anything about him and anything that he decreed and just to set it all aside and say, we owe no allegiance to him. He deserves no honor from us. But in that situation, Peter says, honor the emperor. Be subject, he says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we would be called to do the same. We don't have an emperor right now, but we have other authorities. He even mentions terms like governor back in verse 14. Those are not the same as our governors, but we still have authorities who govern over us, that God has placed an authority over us. And I would point out that we are called to honor them as well, even when we disagree with them, even when, when they make decisions that we think are awful, even when they make decisions that we think are inappropriate or overreaching or underreaching, uh, we are called to honor them. Because they are human beings, they would fall under the first command, right? But also because they are the emperor. They have been given authority in a sense by God. And we are not called to honor them because they are great and wonderful and because they do everything right and because they, they govern in ways that are pure and noble. We are called to simply as a command because God tells us to. Because He has instituted their office, He has placed them, and we are commanded by God to honor them. And we have the example of Christ in this, don't we, as Christians? There are many, as I've read and thought about things in this subject the last few weeks, as we think, how do we relate to our government? There are many who will point out the example of Christ and say, oh, but He flipped over tables like, and he came into the temple and, and took a whip and drove people out of the temple. He was all about challenging authority and overturning things that were unjust and, and over, overturning these things. But that is true. There can be, and we don't have time to get into it, there can be a place, I think, biblically even speaking, to ultimately challenge authority when it's calling us to do things that are unbiblical, that are absolutely morally forbidden by God, or calling us to not do things that are commanded by God. But let's not forget that how Jesus' life ended. Like that same man, our Savior, who flipped over the tables in Jerusalem and who took a whip and drove them out and who publicly confronted teachers, also allowed himself to be unjustly accused of crimes and nailed to a cross. He submitted himself to local governance even at the loss of his own life because he was submitting to a God and authority who is higher than them. He was submitting to the will of his Father. And we cannot color all of this out today. We can't fill in all the lines and shapes to it. But I think we need, if we are going to ever consider being disobedient to our government, that bar needs to be incredibly high. Not impossibly high, but incredibly high, where they are calling us to do things that God has forbidden or forbidding us from doing things that God has commanded. But even if we disagree, and even if we are involved in some ways in advocating for change of policy, I think that can be appropriate in a government system like ours. We must do so in a way that is respectful, in a way that is gracious, in a way that shows that we respect these people as fellow human beings, as people that God has placed into office and authority above us. We must be people who speak respectfully of the people who are in government at state, local, federal levels. We must be people who, I would challenge you with this, is do you pray for them to God as much as you speak about them in public? 
And if you don't, I think we need to get those right. That we are interceding for the people that are in authority over us, asking God to help them more than just having an axe to grind out in society and speaking ill of these people. We need to be honoring of them and respectful of them, even as we advocate in a system like ours for change. And I would note, like I said in verse 13, that we are to do that for the Lord's sake, not for the sake of our governors. We are called to do it for the sake of the Lord. He calls us to be subject to people who are in authority over us. I, I know I speak on behalf of our pastors that I want you to know very clearly that if the government ever forbids us from doing things the Bible commands us to do, we will not respect that law. And if they, they do the opposite, we will not respect that law. We are called to a higher authority than governors and mayors and presidents and judges. But we are to follow and fall underneath their authority as long as they don't call us to do things against the word of God. We are to honor the emperor. That is a command that is simple, but is incredibly challenging for us. And Satan would love for us as Christians who are representing Jesus to become the people who just spew hate towards governors who just spill our guts and our frustrations out on social media and conversations that we have. And we must be people who are measured and self-controlled in how we relate, even to those who disagree with us. We are called to honor our emperor, in a sense, but to serve our Lord even above him or her. I want to end by saying this, that, that these Christ, this crisis that we find in, that any Christian ever finds themselves in, is not just one that's fraught with dangers and threats, but also of opportunities. Uh, I don't want us to be so paranoid that we think Satan's just going to be coming at us from all angles, and we need to be paranoid that I'm just going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. I need to be aware of all these things. We need to see that this, this crisis we're in right now and that we're hopefully starting to come out of is an opportunity as well. There's dangers that abound of ways we could get divided and hateful towards each other and, and dishonor Jesus, but there's also immense opportunity for us to honor Jesus and how we go about this and the ways that we honor fellow human beings the ways that we love and value our church family, and the ways that we keep fearing God, and in the way even that we honor those who are in authority over us. I'd point out verse 12. He said this. He said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a redeeming impact that we can have on our society as we navigate this as Christians individually and as a church collectively. And I pray that we would hear the voice of our Savior, pointing out the dangers we might not even be aware of, uh, and then helping us to honor Him as we go about those. Uh, the way that we seek to honor people who don't deserve it can be a, a taste for them of mercy and of grace, right? The way that we love the brotherhood can be uh, a demonstration to people that there is an unbreakable bond that's stronger than political stances and that will last for all eternity. The way that we fear God can show people that He is our Savior, no governor, no doctor, no economic guru. And the way that we honor the emperor, or our equivalent of an emperor, can show that we take orders from one who the emperor will be accountable to someday, that we have a higher authority even them. May we be aware of our enemy's tactics, but may we even be more aware of our Savior's voice. Amen.